0: I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. My guest today is poet-photographer Sharon Auberly from Door County, Wisconsin. Sharon authors the website Mimi's Go Lightly Cafe, which she has been posting for the last nine years. Her poetry and photography have appeared in numerous publications and anthologies, and she facilitates workshops at the Clearing School in Door County. She's authored three books, Saturday Nights at the Crystal Ball, Crow Ink, and Eve, Free Woman, as well as a co-authored book with poet Ralph Muir called Wind Where Music Was. After we talk with Sharon, I'll be visited by Michael Zarnicki, poet-publisher from upstate New York, who's going to talk about getting in his car, starting to drive, and not coming home until he's done a reading in all 48 of the lower states. We're gonna start right now with a poem from Sharon's first book.
1: This is a book that uh, really is the story of my parents. And it's, it's probably my favorite book. It's my first book. It's the one that uh, means the most to me. So uh, basically the story of my mother is that she married the wrong man <laughs> in my father. And I didn't really know this until she was in her 80s. So this is called Confession. At the age of 80, my mother confesses, riding with me through the town where a man she knew once lived. I should have married Luke. He sent me roses every week and wrote in the most lovely hand. The road tilts for a moment in the copper autumn light. I could let the words pass, pretend I'm intent on driving, forget there was once another man meant to be my father, not that tall man who kept love he couldn't give because of the man with a fine hand who sent roses every week. I could forget her words and just go on loving white roses in autumn. My mother, my dead father, unaware of the sunlight kindling October maples and old, unforgotten desires.
0: Mm. When, when did you write that in the context of the book? When you were thinking of... Telling your stories.
1: Um, I wrote the poems in this book over a period of time, and then I went to uh, Norbert Bly's workshop at the clearing. Mm-hmm. And you have to turn in a the manuscript there, so I turned in my, my mother poems. Uh, it wasn't about, you know, my parents so much. And uh, he said, I think you might have a book here. And he said, but I need to have more about your father in it. So that's was the beginning of this
0: book. Oh, okay. And... Rough, roughly, how how did you proceed to, go to get from story to story or when you knew you had to get more poems? What did you do? <laughs> that wasn't easy because
1: I had never written about my father because I hardly knew him. So it became a really important exercise for me in forgiveness, among other things, mm-hmm. by putting myself in his shoes, which I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. So in that way... Uh, it was very good and very hard, very difficult
0: yeah. to do. Did you have to think of particular incidences, or
1: a lot of it was imagined? Hmm. And you know, I was just very small. He left; my father left the family when I was one year old, and I saw oh. him sporadically after hmm. that. Yeah. But uh, a lot of it was imagined. A lot of it was vague memories and things hmm. I'd been told. Hmm. So okay. Well, let's hear it, now. Well, this one is what I, one of the things I was told. Dancing in the Dark. Someone said the best thing my parents did together was dance. When the two were out together, people would stop and watch the tall man and the laughing girl, who never missed a step, but then their music ended. And my father left to marry a woman who looked up at him in a pleading way. And though she didn't dance, he could not stop. And this may be the softest thing I know about my father. They say he kept on dancing to those old 78s, on moody nights at home, alone and lonely, circling endlessly in the smoky dark. Whoa,
0: that's really moody.
1: I guess it was true. Yeah. Not anything I would know, but... Something I was glad to know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And then, as if that wasn't difficult enough, um, Norb said, towards the end of the manuscript, he said, I think I'd like for you to add, if you could, um, some poems in the voice of your parents now. Whoa. (laughs) Ghost voices. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, and I thought, oh, I don't know about this. So... Um, I did. He was a
0: really good teacher coming up with that kind of stuff for Absolutely,
1: people. absolutely. So, um, this is in the voice. It's just called Edward, which was my father's name. And uh, it begins with an epigraph about Dia de los Muertos, mm-hmm. Day of the Dead. Scatter marigolds on their graves. Objects the dead loved. Food and drink they enjoyed while alive. Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead What objects, honey, will you place on my grave to entice me to return? In your childhood nothing worked. Why would I think you'd want me back now? You might put dancing shoes there where I lie or old records, a bottle of scotch, a picture of your mother, the things I loved long after I should have stopped. Look, honey, These marigolds, like sunlight, on the lake where we met, before you, before the dark lady, before the days of the dead. Maybe tonight, sweetheart, when you're safe in sleep, I'll come and tell you that love does not hurt so badly where we are. So that was in my father's voice.
0: That is just really interesting to have done. It's an exercise. (laughs) All right. Did it take a long time? I mean, relative to other poems, or did you I snap guess, into it at some point? Well, I certainly did. Started to flow.
1: I never snapped, that's <laughs> for sure. But yeah. um, it didn't take as long as I thought it might. Hmm. And and I've written other poems. You know, there's the poems that come to you. Yeah. You know, those are fabulous. But uh, and I didn't. I should have brought one or two of them along. But um, that I call my channeled poems, which. I don't really believe so much in channeling. Well, maybe a little, but um, the poems. And so um, I can do that, and I I really like it. I've, I've written some in um, things I read in the paper, for instance, of a, a young woman who was the 19th murder victim in Phoenix in a month, and her voice just came to me when I read that article. Mm. And so anyway, um, this is sort of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So that is this book.
0: Okay, we to do some Crow Ink.
1: Yeah, no, so Crow Ink was um, the first book that I really included my photography, uh, which I really like doing a lot now. I don't know that I'd even want to write a book without,
0: without the visuals. Without images, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, you want to hear one from Sure.
0: That?
1: This one is called um, Six Degrees of Separation. Only six people, it is said, any separate I'm sorry, let me start over. <laughs> only six people, it is said, separate any person from another, anywhere on this earth. I want to believe that. I want to believe with just six connections, I could know an Eskimo, an African tribesman, a mother in Iraq. I want to believe it would take only six people to reconnect with a gypsy I once saw, the woman in cold rain on the steps of the Duomo in Florence, Italy. I would find her again, her feet knobby and bare, her black hair tangled in dusty braids. Begging, she would whisper again, for my bambino, please, for my bambino. And this time I would take her chapped brown hand, place Lyra in it, Close her fingers round the bills. This time I would get it right, not turn aside, as her sleeve brushed my coat. This time my shame would not outweigh hers.
0: It's funny how little incidents, some little incidences really stay with you, and you look back and... They really do. Like that, why didn't I give her a couple of coins?
1: Yeah, yeah, guilt and, and, you know, sadness. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, actually, this was a one-second place in a <laughs> a uh, contest. So yeah,
0: I've it's pretty good. It. Yeah. It makes it, it's really vivid. She was vivid. Yeah. And it's a nice turn from the poem, which starts off, you might say, theoretically, the right. six degrees right. idea. Yeah. And yeah. then goes over to the the personal yeah. and the emotional.
1: Yes. Yeah. Nice switch. Thank you. You want to hear another one out of this? Sure. Okay. Um, So then another poem in here um, begins with an epigraph by Leonard Cohen, one of my favorites, uh, which is, There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Hearts. There were times through the years, love, I thought my heart would break, times it felt rough around the edges, and since I wear it out there on my sleeve, you always knew, while your heart was mostly tucked away, steadfast and quiet, though once I saw it naked in your eyes. And didn't we both expect perfection, that your heart would always speak when I needed it and that mine would hear all your unspoken words? Maybe growing old is just learning to cradle each other's heart in our hands like a broken baby bird or snowflakes melting in fists of light. Fists of light. Fists of light. I, I write about light a lot, I know. A lot of poets
0: do. Well, <laughs> especially those who do photography, I bet. Oh, that's true. Well, probably, maybe uh, there is a connection there. Ferlinghetti does it a lot, he mm. paints. Yeah, yeah. You know, and in fact, even the book uh, kind of, I don't know if it's about it, but the title is something about light. Oh, I'll and, have uh, to look Yeah. God. Yeah. Amazing. He's That's,
1: about 95 now.
0: And this new book is really good. Mm. We should all be writing poems sounds of, good. when we're 95. means yeah, we got a few more decades to go. This is good.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, keep going. Tell me some more, sure. Read some more poems.
1: Well... This book, back to the channeling again, Mm -hmm. although I didn't, (laughs) it's called Every Woman, but the first three letters are EVE, Eve, because I was working in this gallery up here in Door County and it was early in the season and there weren't many people coming in the door. So it's, you know, I got to read and write a lot. And um, I don't know, somewhere Eve popped into my mind, writing these poems from the perspective of Eve. And in a few days I had, I got twelve little poems out wow. of it. So this book is the only one that I've um, done with color photography because it's rather expensive to publish. Yeah. Anyway, um, it was very interesting and it was fun. So they're just entitled Eve Number 1 through 12 and so this is uh, Eve Number 10. For a single plum to ripen, Eve has waited months. At last, though tiny, it lies cradled in her palm. Once upon a time, there was another tree. Eve remembers a wild plum, extravagant with blossoms, a woman dancing beneath. Though long ago, Eve has not forgotten, not the tree, not the woman. Some days, she believes it could have been God. Today, Eve licks the plum shriveled flesh, sucks dry the scant juice. Later, she'll plant its stone in that bone scattered, bloody field of war where once a garden flourished.
0: What I like about your poetry is that it's stated in a really straightforward way, but at the same time, it's not simplistic. <laughs> That's a good combination. Yeah, I think it's ideal. Thank you. Know? you. I just really, really love it. You're just, it's just like natural talking, like Williams says and the others say about yeah. using natural speech. Yeah, Thank But you. But what it's talking about is not ordinary, really.
1: Well, in so many poems, you know, that I read, well, like in the New York <laughs> mm-hmm. poetry magazine. I, mm-hmm. I just don't have a clue. What they're talking about, and I'm sure that maybe if I were better studied or informed or something, I uh, might get them. But so that's why I've always consciously tried to write
0: to be understood. Yeah, I share your bias or preferences. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I suppose if if you want to be a notable poet, you should advance the art. But what are you, what are you gonna do? Right. I don't know. Exactly. Um, being more know. obscure doesn't necessarily just—you're saying it different in an obscure way, so I'm not sure that really advances anything. Not if anybody doesn't understand what and, you're saying. And people like us don't want to just talk to the club, right? Back so that's the other thing too, right? Of course, Ted Kooser used to read his to the secretaries <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs> to, love be, it. to be sure that they thought <laughs> yeah. It was, they yeah, got what was going on and thought it was okay, and that was. I
1: love his poetry. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of my favorites, William Stafford, uh, Mary Oliver, of mm. course.
0: Lots of favorites. What's your opinion, on, I'm asking people this, what's your opinion on the uh, relationship of speaking the poem versus reading the poem? Uh, yeah,
1: It can certainly be two different things. And the thing is, even the best of poets, um, not only do you uh, need to hear it again or Read it you know, slowly, my mm-hmm. mind, to get it, but you want to. Just one yeah. reading is not enough.
0: Yeah, that's the disadvantage of a live reading. Right. And the advantage that people can play your poems again Yeah, when they're listening to this. Yeah, good, good. And that's a nice thought. Yes. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, sometimes you, well, when I'm, I'm doing it, I feel like I bet people miss a couple of yeah. cool things in this yeah. poem, and you hope that. They don't know right. you like the not non opposite.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I just read a, a quote this morning by Charles Simic um about haiku reading haiku and he said um, reading a haiku hardly takes more time than a sneeze. Right. <laughs> 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 That's pretty good. Of course you should always read a haiku twice when you're doing it at a reading
0: it. I'm yeah. told. I've recently yeah, well, Recently, it seems people have started doing that who are uh, really into haiku. Yeah. They just do it. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to read them all twice, so you'll know. Absolutely. And uh, it does, it helps a Oh, lot. it does with haiku, yeah. And still, it's not the best thing for spoken presentation, it I is don't think.
1: Absolutely uh, not, no. Yeah. And it's even better with an image, even though yeah. the haiku paints an image, you know. Yeah. I have some beautiful books of haiku with the oriental paintings. Yeah. You know? Well, let's hear about
0: some of the next book.
1: Well, this book, Wind, Where Music Was, was written um, in collaboration with my partner, Ralph Murray. And um, it's about men and women being from Mars and Venus. It's about love. (laughs) And, you know, we each have been married before and um, feel strongly that that marriage and that person is still very much in us and with us. Not physically, obviously, mm-hmm. but made us who we are. Maybe mm-hmm. even made us partially the poets that we are from the experiences. And um, so we wanted to write about that and honor them. And so, among other things, we ne- we didn't indicate who wrote what poem in here through the whole book. Oh, that's very deep. And some people, it drives them crazy. <laughs> And some people don't know that, that actually we did at the back put an indices, oh. you know, about who did. But a lot of people don't bother to look at that. So.
0: And right now, are you going to read ones that you wrote? Uh, maybe. I had to ask. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe. Okay, cool. <laughs> so Buy the book if you want to know who uh, wrote which poem. Exactly.
1: So um, this one is called Fantasy. On a snowy night, you first came to my door offering a split of pink champagne. You thought I was moonlight, maybe wings. We drank from crystal glasses, wrapped ourselves in the long silk of my hair, which took years for reality to untangle. I think I'm still a figment of your imagination. And my ex-husband didn't tell me that till long after. (laughs) He thought I was freedom and all this stuff, you know. Another one from this book is People just want to sing the blues. People don't want to hear happy songs. No cheerful ones. Mostly no love songs unless it's a somebody done somebody wrong song. If you're going to sing about love, it better be between pain and goodbye because mostly people just want blues. They want a ballad about Caroline's jazz bar down the corner of Florida and 2nd and about that old man who walks in alone, sits front and center alone, drinks his drinks, one after the other, after the other, alone. And they want to know what old love he's remembering and what love you're remembering and what that man did to you. And they want to weep over that wailing sax player and him so young, how can he know blue? And they want to know about rain trickling down the window tonight like black tears. That's what people want to sing. How rum and coke sweetens the bitter taste. A lover left in your mouth. How it feels listening to that dreadlocked doorman singing blues all cool and smooth. And how he makes you hurt so good. Because you know he knows hurt. And people want to get down with smiling Caroline and her stilettos and her gold glittery dress that sometimes takes away the pain. And even that rain dancing alone out in the street, they want you to say, sure, even night rain sings the blues. I
0: mentioned to you from the poems you sent me that something about your poems have a, a blues tone to them. Because we all know the blues isn't really about boo-hoo, boo-hoo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's about hard time, but you get through. Yeah, and yeah. And there's that element, there's that positive hopeful element you might say right while acknowledging the downside
1: right and that's that
0: what we wanted this feel. book to be about we came through it and, you know That's a great project for the two of you to do together it seems like that would be quite good for the relationship
1: <laughs> pretty much good there's you know uh, first of all just two people trying to have the same ideas of what, right. you know, and, and brought up a lot of memories. And pondering
0: your exes. Yeah, yeah. You they know, were, So that's something, too. They were very much in this book. Yeah. You said you wanted to wrap up with that poem over there?
1: Yes. Angel Fire. It begins with an epigraph by Linda Pastan, um, mm-hmm. who's another one of my favorite poems. Everything we touch turns to a poem when the spell is on. The mystery of corn stalks murmuring among themselves A brown-skinned man in orange serape, walking between them, the slump of his shoulders tugging at my heart. From any of these a poem might grow, but today there's only the man, light streaming down on him. He, who could be an angel, for all might be holier than we know. His serape fiery in morning sun, the wind lifting it like wings.
0: I can't help thinking, also, there's there's a ski resort in New Mexico with that name. I know. Been there. Uh, okay. Actually, that's where I, I took the title. I've only driven past it. But, yeah, it's, it's a great phrase. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, Just and so far.
0: Yeah. So we've been talking to Sharon Oberle here on Poetry Spoken Now we're going to be talking to Michael Zarnikin. He's the author of numerous books of poetry, and he lives off the grid at a place called Wheeler Hill in upstate New York. That's where he operates Foothill Publishing, a small literary press that has published over 300 books of poetry in the last 30 years, each one carefully crafted and hand-stitched. But today we're not interested in when Michael's at Wheeler Hill because he travels regularly and extensively around New York State, the Northeast, and the country giving readings and leading workshops in poetry, and memoir writing. A couple of years ago he went on a very long road trip tour that included giving one reading, at least one reading, in each of the 48 contiguous United States. That's what we're going to talk about today. So Michael, Welcome to Poetry Spoken Here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So the first question is, where did you get this idea for such an extravagant road trip?
2: Uh, Extravagant, huh? Yes. The idea came when I was in Maine, actually. We we went and lived at Mount Desert Island for two winters, 2003-04 and 2004-05. And that second winter, um, I was sitting around, you know, thinking about how many states have I visited? You know, how many states, you know, in the continental U.S. have I been to? And I figured, oh, it was like maybe about half of them. And then I was thinking, oh, it'd be cool to visit all the states. And I thought, hey, why not do a poetry tour where I give a reading in each of the lower 48 states? I started planning, but it didn't amount to anything at that point. Two years ago, well, a little more like three years ago, we lost our house and all our possessions, you know, complete loss, yeah. everything All the foothills, the archives. And, and that fall, you know, I was thinking about, you know, how suddenly things can change in life. And I thought, you know, maybe I need to do that 48-state poetry tour soon.
0: The old carpe diem, eh? Hey?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I said, hey, let me let me plan it. So, you know, I started working on planning out this 48 state tour. And uh, so, yeah, and I made it happen. And it was 14 weeks, I believe you told me a great time of the year,
0: like right around now, August through November.
2: The first reading was August 13th up in Maine, uh, Acadia National Park area, the uh, Southwest Harbor Library, and that's my spiritual home, Acadia. I saw perfect place to start such a such an extravagant tour as you say. And yeah, that was the first reading August 13th and then the final reading 14 weeks later was November 17th in Corning, New York, 30 miles from Wheeler Hill on my 63rd birthday. So it was perfect. I bracketed the, the the whole tour between my two homes, my spiritual home, Acadia, and my home close to Wheeler Hill.
0: And great timing on the birthday. That is very, very cool. You told me that you managed to sometimes barter poetry for lodging. And I have to say, can, can you really do that in 21st century America?
2: I've been how doing do you, it. Yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> well, I, the first time that happened... Was about 1996. I was on my Route 20 tour, a whole other tour across America, not as extravagant as the 48 State tour, but uh, my first real across America tour as a poet. Route 20, longest road in America, Boston to Newport, Oregon, and I didn't have enough money to do that tour. I only had a few readings booked. I wasn't as wise to booking as I am now and you know I didn't have enough money I was sleeping in the car the first night I slept in the my Honda Civic station wagon and the second night I was eating at a diner and cheap meal and I realized it was a motel too and I had one of those flashes of inspiration I wonder if they would barter for a room so I approached the obvious owner talked to him and said hey Bruce um you know, I'd like to, you know, I'm writing a book about this journey, Route 20, longest road in America. And would you be interested in giving me a complimentary room for the night? And I'll acknowledge you in the book uh, on the acknowledgments page. I, I never said I would write about you, but I'll acknowledge you on the acknowledgments page. And then when the book comes out, I'll give you enough copies of the book. And he looked at me, he said, sure, why not? And that started out my bartering on the road as a poet. And I did that across America. It's in in the book. I've got all these acknowledgments, of different motels and campground even. And since then I've done that. uh, And it's a wonderful way to have experiences beyond the check in the motel, get your room and all that. And what I do is when I give readings now, if I don't have plans for the night, I'll mention that story and then I'll say, hey, if anyone's got a spare couch, I'll trade a few books for a place to stay. And it's amazing the response I get from that. Often there's choices to make, okay, because more than one person will offer to, hey, yeah, yeah, I'll trade some books for a place, you know? So it works. And you know, Charlie, I, you know, 1996, that was, you know, this is, you know, 19 years ago, never had one difficult problem because of that. It's always been smooth, wonderful, amazing experiences. And it's like, yeah, all poets should do that, you know? When you, uh,
0: what what kind of reaction, having had some experience not extensive like yours uh, in reading around in small places, I'm guessing your audiences range from about two to 102, <laughs> something like that. And if they don't, and in places where they don't usually get poetry readings, uh, how, how do they respond?
2: yeah you're right about two well actually there was zero at one point but that's because i was reading to the gulf of mexico you know uh, i i never got an official reading uh down in mississippi so i was near biloxi and i said i'm gonna give a reading and this is thanks to you charlie one of your ideas uh, that if i didn't get a reading in indiana i remember you said i should go to the indiana dunes and read to lake michigan well i never got an official reading booked in mississippi you know some of the booking I was doing while I was on tour, and so I, I, I stood on the on the shore of the Gulf of Mexico, and and I read haiku to the Gulf of Mexico, and then I scratched one into the sand, into the white sand beach. I scratched in one of my haikus. So that was the zero audience, but it was an amazing audience. Those waves coming in from the Gulf, you know. Um, yeah, two people to a hundred, you know, there was a festival I write at in Mobile, Alabama. It was a, it was a big poetry festival day. I had two readings there during the festival and a lot of people outdoors. And and yeah, the responses, I mean, it varied. Some were amazing. Some were, you know, you know, they're, they're not all winners necessarily. Uh, but can I tell you a story about the, the one where two people only showed up?
0: Tell us like one more story of a very, of an interesting experience.
2: Okay, well, here it is. And this was uh, where you said, Indiana, and you said, if I don't get an official reading, go read to Lake Michigan from the dunes. Well, I ended up getting a reading in Angola, Indiana, and I wanted to read there specifically because back in 1997, my six-year-old son at that time, Grayson, read his first poem in public at the library in Angola, so I really wanted to make that my Angola reading. I had a hard time connecting the person I needed to connect with. A week before the reading, I finally got a hold of that person. Basically, and I never really do this, but I talked her into letting me read there. I didn't even ask for an honorarium. I said, I really just want to read there. And she said, okay, and, you know, I'm not even going to be here next week. She was hesitant. I said, look, I'll make up a flyer. I'll send it right out to you, and whatever happens, happens. She said, okay. So I made up a flyer, sent it to her, you know, email and all that. And I got into town, set up my camp at Pokagon State Park and came in uh, early in the afternoon to let the library know I was there. Not a flyer anywhere to be seen. They never promoted it. Uh, There was on the whiteboard as you walk in poetry, 630, you know, and that was it. So I talked to the desk people, you know, and the person I contacted, the program person wasn't around that week. And I said, please, you know, let your patrons know there's a reading tonight, maybe. And I, so I went back to camp, came to the library, about 6.15, set up my computer, checked mail, put a few books out. 6.30, nobody there. 6.35, nobody there. 6.40, nobody there. I'm thinking, hmm, Charlie said, go read to Lake Michigan. I think I'm coming, you know, <laughs> Lake Michigan, here I come. And then suddenly one woman walked in. And then a second woman walked in, mm-hmm. and so I had an audience of two, and it was an amazing hour. We had this wonderful hour of, you know, poetry and conversation. The two of them said, oh, this room should have been full. You know, they were so disappointed that, there, you know, that the library never promoted it. Well, it turned out between the two women they bought 84 dollars worth of my books which was wonderful you know always helpful so wow and and then one of the one of the two said hey what are you doing afterwards i'm going to my um daughter-in-law's house for supper why don't you come with me you can meet the grand two grandkids and that i said i'd love to well as it turned out had a wonderful evening great time with the kids they went to bed her daughter-in-law brought out some wine. We sat around the table talking till midnight. Just wonderful conversation. And I've been back to Angola four times since, and wow. made just really connections to the with the community there. With Luann Holman, the person that that was that took me to dinner. She's a storyteller. You know, she's had me do two house readings. Uh, I'm going to be there in November again. And you know two people no advertising two people showed up and what an amazing experience it was that led to way beyond just that experience you know i think you know i'll be out there once or twice a year for the you know foreseeable future you know and i've made wonderful friends and and like they say i'm part of that community now
0: that's a great story to end on michael i'm, I'm this is really interesting thanks for being here
2: uh, hey my pleasure charlie and uh, i look forward to seeing you when i'm on the road in fall <laughs> You've been listening to
0: Poetry Spoken Here with Michael Zarnikki telling us about his 48-state tour. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack rossiter Monley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Poetry Spoken Here. Follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Poetry Spoken Here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, Poetry spoken here at gmail.com